Micah 4, verse 9, we'll read through chapter 5, verse 5a. All right? Now, why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in you? Has your counselor perished, that pain seized you like a woman in labor? Writhe and groan, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor. For now you shall go out from the city and dwell in the open country. You shall go to Babylon. There you shall be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. Now many nations are assembled against you, saying, Let her be defiled, and let our eyes gaze upon Zion. But they do not know the thoughts of the Lord. They do not understand his plan, that he has gathered them as sheaves to the threshing floor. Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I will make your horn iron, and I will make your hooves bronze. You shall beat in pieces many peoples, and shall devote their gain to the Lord, their wealth to the Lord of the whole earth. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. Wow. Let's pray. Father, we are looking forward. Well, we're looking backward to the fulfillment of the promise of Micah 5.2. And we're looking backward with gratitude and awe and wonder in our hearts, Father, for what you have already done in fulfillment of your word. And we're looking forward with great hope in our hearts for the return, the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We're looking forward to that time when he shall stand and shepherd his flock, us included, in your strength and in the majesty of your name. We are looking forward to the day when his name is great to the ends of the earth. We know that we will dwell secure. For these promises, we praise you. And Father, I pray that for the present now, the present evil age, you would give us such strength of hope that we would persevere until that day comes. Persevere through, endure to the very end. Father, I don't know the burdens that are on um, the hearts of those who are gathered here, but I pray, Father, that your Holy Spirit would now bring to bear on those problems the promises of your word. Give to us, I pray, 
undeserved as we are, give to us in Jesus all that we need to hear this word and to believe it and to hope in your unfailing love. In Jesus' name and for his sake, I pray. Amen. Okay, Christmas service. It's a time of celebration. It's a time of joy. But if you would allow me, I want to begin our service this morning with a rebuke. Not a strong, severe, harsh rebuke. A gentle one. But I I do want to begin with a rebuke this morning. If you'd allow me, uh, please don't tune me out and turn me off. I do not feel that the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, is the single great hope among us. And I think there are certain things that have lent themselves to bring us to a place where this great hope is not our single great hope. The United States hasn't seen full-scale war on its soil in 150 years. We live in the nation that has set the blistering pace of our technologically advancing age. We enjoy, we have received uh, vaccinations to um, eradicate diseases that once ravaged the earth. We have so many blessings that today's middle class and the things that the middle class has would put yesterday's kings to shame. Wouldn't you agree that by and large, in comparison to the rest of the earth, with our rights and our securities and our freedoms, wouldn't you agree that we live the peaceful and quiet life? By and large, in comparison, I think it would be very hard to argue that we don't have this life. And I believe that this day of prosperity in concert with our hearts, has turned our hopes earthward. What are we praying for? When we say, how long, O Lord? What is the thing thing that we're asking for? And what is the thing that we're waiting for? More than, O Lord, give to us your spirit. Or, O Lord, give to us your son. I think the most frequent prayer on the lips of the American church is, Oh Lord, keep us safe. We want a painless life. I don't believe that our single great hope is the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So my hope for today for this message, is that that great hope would be awakened again, revived again, restored to all of our hearts. Nobody uh, exempted from that. That's my hope and that's my prayer to the Lord. I don't want you to be caught off guard when this present evil age looks like it. I don't want you to throw up your hands in complete despair when the present evil age looks like it in your household. 
when the darkness creeps in to your house and begins to climb over everything. The prophet Micah ministered in the day when things were dark. When darkness came in in the form of the Assyrian army. And he lived in the day when that darkness was beaten back. But God gave him eyes to see and a voice to speak that darkness would return in the form of the empire of Babylon. And they would not be turned back. The people of God would be defeated. Jerusalem and the temple within it would fall. And the people of God would be taken away into exile. But at the same time that Micah had eyes to see that, and in his day Isaiah with him, God also gave them words. Words to speak of a future now that would overcome the present now. And I know that may sound confusing. I'll explain it. The future now would overcome the present now when God's coming king would be great to the ends of the earth and his people would dwell secure. What we have to realize is that we're not going to escape suffering. We are not. And if our hope is all here, if our hopes are all here and our prayers are pinned to the present now, you will not be prepared. You will not be prepared for the sufferings coming today, and you won't be prepared for the Savior who is coming tomorrow. And I don't mean that in the literal temporal sense. You understand, I think, what I mean by tomorrow. You won't be prepared for either one, but the child of God is going to have both. The sufferings today and the Savior tomorrow. And only one of those will remain forever. So my prayer, again, is that your hopes in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ would be revived to, to overcome, to be the peak hope, to be the preeminent hope of our hearts. Let's now, let's launch into this text. I don't know if you noticed, likely not because it's such a little word, but the little word now is woven all throughout this unit of thought that begins in chapter 4, verse 9, and ends with the very beginning of, of chapter 5, verse 5. Now, now, is brutal throughout Micah 4 through the beginning of chapter 5. Chapters, chapter 4, verses 9, 10, and 11 with chapter 5, verse 1, feature this same little word that pierces sorrow. Look again at, at verse 9. Now, why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in you? Has your counselor perished? That pain seized you like a woman in labor. Writhe and groan, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor. For now you shall go out from the city and dwell in the open country. You shall go to Babylon. The son of David is gone. He's off the scene, the son of David as in the current king, and the rest of the nation is about to follow him into exile. Look at verse 11. Now many nations are assembled against you, saying, let her be defiled and let our eyes gaze upon Zion. The siege and the fall of Jerusalem are must-see entertainment for the world. We come into chapter 5, verse 1. And the now that begins this chapter 
combines some of the sufferings of the previous three nows. Now, muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod, they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. How did this come to fruition historically? Jerusalem was surrounded. It was under siege. An exile is imminent. Jerusalem's king is struck down. In the first waves of deportation, which began around 609 BC, evil King Jehoiakim, who was the grandson of very godly Josiah, was taken into captivity by Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, then installed Jehoiakim's uncle, Zedekiah, as the king in Judah. For nine years, Zedekiah reigned. And then he rebelled against Babylon. And that's what began the final siege that would lead to the destruction of the city. For two years, Babylon held the city of Jerusalem under siege. No one came in and no one went out. The conditions inside the city in those two years were brutal. Where once the city teemed with life, now it teemed with fear. And the people were resorting to the most unthinkable means in order to survive. At the end of those two years, a breach was made in the wall and King Zedekiah attempted to escape. The attempt was short-lived. He was quickly captured. And before his two eyes were put out by his captors, the last thing he saw in this life were his two sons cut down by the sword. And then Zedekiah was taken to Babylon. The first four nows that we have looked at, 4, 9, 10, and 11, in chapter 5, verse 1, hold within them such suffering. Those first four nows, such a little word, hold within them such suffering that it will take some of the Bible's most painful Passages to flesh out, such as the book of Lamentations. But Micah's message is typical of all the Bible in in so many ways. It seems that God's word never stays long on judgment. Thank God. So to each now, you have noticed probably that there is a very immediate and a very powerful rejoinder. There is a promise in response. In chapter 4, verse 10, there's a promise of rescue that answers the first two nows. And ultimate victory answers the third now in in verses 12 and 13 of chapter 4. So with every promise of judgment and disaster, there is an immediate powerful rejoinder, a promise of rescue and deliverance. So there's a pattern. It's so helpful to see this in context, isn't it? There's a pattern that's unfolding here. We, we come to an, the, uh, what is it? The fourth now. In chapter 5, verse 1, there is a now that is promising judgment, promising disaster. It is destruction for Jerusalem. Well, if the pattern holds true from what we just have studied, we should expect it to continue. We should expect an immediate, powerful, rejoinder, response 
to the promise of judgment. And there is this great promise that is one of the jaw-dropping promises of all of the Old Testament. It's incredible. Um, um, the, The previous promises could not be more true. But this promise, beginning in chapter 5, verse 2, is just, it's at new heights. For specificity, I don't think that this promise is matched more than a few times in the Old Testament. For specificity and clarity, I don't think there's a prophecy quite like it in all of the Old Testament. Let me argue that out a little bit. Daniel's prophecy of the weeks is very specific, but it's loaded with mystery. So there's still ongoing debate about what it all means. I mean, I have a certain idea, but it's specific, but not the most clear. You could say that Isaiah's promises of the suffering servant, Isaiah 42, 49, 50, I believe it is, and and the end of 52 and 53, very specific prophecies of what Jesus would suffer. But not extremely clear, uh, quite clear, uh, especially with hindsight for the people of God, but I'm saying there was still a good bit of mystery so that by Jesus' day, the religious scholars of his day still did not understand who the suffering servant was. They didn't connect it with the Messiah. There was still a good bit of a lack of clarity. It's very specific, but not quite as clear. There was no mystery. There is no mystery like that in Micah 5, verse 2. Let's go ahead and read it again. He says, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. There, is, there was no misunderstanding this passage. At least for the religious leaders, they knew very well what it meant. And before I uh, go any further with that, that thought, let me also talk just about the hope of this promise and the glory of it. Compared to the, the prophecies of the Old Testament, this promise in Micah 5.2 and following is right up there with, say, the, the hope and glory that is given to us in Daniel chapter 7. Daniel talks about in the night visions he saw come with the the clouds one like the Son of Man who is presented to the Ancient of Days and to him is given glory and dominion and the kingdom. This is right up there with that. Or Isaiah chapter 9 where the, the child is promised to be born, the Son given to us who will be called Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Wonderful Counselor, Prince of Peace. Right up there. Micah 5 is right up there with the hope and glory of this. So the hope and glory of this promise and the specificity and the clarity of it, this is, again, a jaw-dropping promise. It's incredible. How precise and how clear is this? This promise. 700 years down the road from Micah, wise men will see a star. They will come from the east to Jerusalem and they will inquire in Herod's household Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? And to Herod's inquiry, to the religious scholarship of the day, there is no deliberation about where he is to be born who is king of the Jews. Their response is in Bethlehem of Judea. 
For so it is written in the prophet. Matthew 2. They quote there Micah 5 verse 2. This incredible promise. Let's talk about it some more. Bethlehem, Ephrathah. Pretty obscure place. Little, overlooked. Even though it was the birthplace of David and the Davidic dynasty, it was still being overlooked in Jesus' day. Micah says, It is too little to be counted among the clans of Judah. Back uh, when Israel was first given this land of promise, and uh, they, they conquered the nations who were there and drove them out, After they had succeeded in that conquest, do you remember that Joshua, the leader, handed out as an allotment um, all of the, the pieces of land that would belong to every tribe? And with every allotment of land, he was naming off all kinds of cities that would belong to every tribe. And in the allotment that was given to the tribe of Judah, 115 places are named. 115 places in Judah that the tribe would inherit. Bethlehem, not mentioned. They had inherited it, but it was too small to be counted among the clans of Judah. And even in Jesus' day, it remained easily overlooked. But here is the promise. From you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel. If we are going to understand the magnitude of this promise, we have to understand it in its historical context. It is impossible for us to overestimate how essential and and significant the Davidic dynasty is to the tribe of Judah. Let me put it like this. For the northern kingdom of Israel, that, that throne in the rebel kingdom changed family hands nine times. It changed bloodlines nine times in 200 years. On the other hand, in the southern kingdom, the Davidic dynasty remained on the throne for 400 years. So nine, nine you wouldn't even call them dynasties, really, in 200 years, and one in the south and for 400 years. God had made a covenant with David. Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So what's, what's going on? Why the mourning? Why the uncertainty? Why the, why the despair in Micah and Isaiah and Jeremiah and such? The people are distraught because their kings are going down one after another. Micah is looking ahead 100 years to the coming of Babylon and he sees the Davidic dynasty on the brink of ruin. The last four kings who sat upon the throne of Judah were all taken into exile. The first one to Egypt, the next three to Babylon. Jehoiakim, who was the last rightful heir to the throne of David, who ruled. His name was also Jeconiah. He was cursed by God. In Jeremiah 22, it says, None of his offspring shall succeed in sitting on the throne of David and ruling again in Judah. So Micah is sitting here mourning in advance as he foresees 
the dynasty falling. And that's, look again at at 4 verse 9. Why are the people wailing? Why are they distraught? He says, is there no king in you? It feels as though with the demise of their king, the people of God themselves are being cut off from God and His promises. Almost like they're becoming Gentiles. They're becoming like the rest of the world. And that's why they are distraught. And so when this promise is given concerning Bethlehem Ephrathah, from this little town coming one who will be ruler in Israel, that just that historical context helps us to understand the magnitude of this promise. It says, His coming forth, look back at it, His coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. This refers to two things. Number one, it means that every single royal promise has ultimately always been about Jesus. Way back in the beginning of the Jewish people with Abraham, with the announcement, Abraham, kings will come from you. On to Jacob's prophecy that the scepter will not depart from Judah. And then about a millennium later, when God gave his covenant to David, all of it was ultimately about Jesus. The royal promises have always been about him. He is David's greater son who will come forth and who will take the throne, who will rule over the house of Jacob forever, whose kingdom will never end. Just as the angel Gabriel promised to his mother, the Virgin Mary. It also means this. Not only have the royal promises always been ultimately about Jesus, but we are talking about the one who is the king without end and God the Son without beginning the eternal one. And the Lord says, he will come forth for me. For me. Micah is so descript and so thorough in his indictment of the corruption that existed on every level of leadership in Judah. Uh, These leaders, many of the kings included, he says, loved evil and hated good. They oppressed the poor. They did everything they could, used every means at their disposal to accumulate more for themselves at the expense of others. Micah condemns them right and left for this injustice. And the Davidic dynasty would come under God's curse until that holy night in Bethlehem when this young girl who has never known a man in an intimate way gives birth to a son. Finally, the royal son who will walk in all the ways of his father and not turn aside to the right hand nor to the left. This is our Jesus. This is our King. He will come forth, the Lord says, for me. His coming is from God. He is coming forth for God, and everything that he will accomplish is through God. And this is the way of all things. All things are from him, and through him, and to him, to whom be glory forever. In verse 3, it says, Therefore he shall give them up 
until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. When he comes, salvation comes to Israel. Think of the faithful, godly people who were awaiting the coming of the Messiah. Think of the individuals like godly Zechariah and Elizabeth who would bear John, known as the Baptist, who would prepare the way for the Messiah. Think of Mary and her husband Joseph, or Simeon and Anna. They were all waiting, to use Zechariah's words, they were waiting for that sunrise from heaven who would give light to those who sit in darkness. When Jesus came, salvation came with him. I believe that the phrase there in verse 3, the rest of his brothers, is speaking not of the Jewish people, but of the Gentile nations. The rest of his brothers returning to Israel. I think that this points beyond Israel to a Gentile remnant. A remnant of people who will be joined to the Jewish remnant who will be grafted into Israel to become one great nation, to become one flock that our Lord shepherds. This is the message of Micah. There is a remnant of people who hear the word of the Lord and hope in his unfailing love. Those are the people that God saves. That is the flock that the Lord Jesus shepherds. They are being in-gathered even now. And my question to you is, are you among them? Are you one? Do you hear the word of the Lord? Do you hope in His unfailing love? Do you have any trust besides the Lord Jesus Christ for your salvation? Are you one of those who are brought in? It says in verse 4, It promises us, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. What does it describe for us in chapters 4 and 5? These prior sons of David fall like dominoes, one after another. I mean, the the dynasty is on the brink of ruin, and it, it becomes ruined, even under the curse of God. But this ruler, David's greater son, will stand. They fall like dominoes. He will stand. And he will shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord and in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. I know my own. And my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. Do you know Him to be your shepherd? Are you part of that flock? His sheep know Him, He says. And I laid down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. Maybe you didn't understand why I said a moment ago that I believe that the rest of his brothers 
in verse 3 is referring to the Gentiles. I'm interpreting Micah 5.3 in light of what Jesus says in John 10. I have sheep who are not of this fold. They are not naturally my own. I am going to bring them also, and there will be one flock, one shepherd. He goes on in John 10, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. And all of his shepherding, and all of his standing, and all of his accomplishment of salvation, again, he completes in the strength of the Lord and in the majesty of his name. Again, he comes forth from him and for him, and all he accomplishes is through him. And at the end of verse 4 and the beginning of 5, this promise, and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. Okay. Anybody notice that now? I bet the majority of those who looked along with me as I read missed it. Once more, this little word now. Don't dismiss it as a coincidence. I think the Lord is speaking to you and to me with a very deliberate, careful, and concentrated use of this word. And I can prove it to you. In the book of Micah, there are 105 verses. Seven times in those 105 verses, we find the little word now. Seven times. Five of those times are in this nine and a half verses unit of thought. Five times of the seven. In these nine and a half verses, we find the word now. Out of 105 verses, this is a big word. Now, notice, it's the last time that it's used in the section. This is the fifth and the final now. Now is a big word in this context. It's not speaking about um, the, the split second immediate, like, okay, here one moment, now, and then gone the next. Ah, we missed it. You know, like, now, no, 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 now, that kind of thing. That's not what this word is. That's a little word. This now is a big word. It speaks of an age, the present age for the people of God. So the first four nows describe an abysmal age, an age of peril and loss, of pain and darkness for the people of God. It is the present evil age. That's what is captured in those first four uses of that little word now. So again, notice, this is the last time it's used in this section. And also notice, in this now, everything is different. Everything is changed. In this now, the prophet Micah is speaking of a new day, a new era, a new age for the people of God, in which God's shepherd king reigns over the earth, and his people dwell secure. No more peril. No more loss. No more pain. 
No more tears. No more corruption in leadership. No more falls. Because in that future now, he stands. And he stands forever. He shepherds his flock in the strength of the Lord and in the majesty of his name. For in that now, he will be great to the ends of the earth. Do you realize how amazing this passage of Scripture is? And how amazing it is to, to, to sit here, here and now, to look back with hindsight on Micah giving that promise? Because we are not those who are awaiting the promise of his Bethlehem coming. We're not. God has fulfilled his word. God has fulfilled his promise. And do you realize what this means? Hear the word of the Lord. Take it to heart and take heart, church family. If God has fulfilled his promise, he will do the rest. It's coming. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. And a corresponding star came up out of Jacob. And Magi spotted it in the nighttime sky. They made their way from the east to Jerusalem. And they came saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. And all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judah. For so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. After listening to the king, they went on their way, skipping down a little. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. The now of the present evil age is long and it's very evil. We don't talk about it much in our Christmas celebrations, but you remember what the enraged Herod did when he realized that the wise men hadn't obeyed his word to come back to him and report about what they had found. That he proceeded to have killed every little boy two years of age and under in Bethlehem and the surrounding region just to make certain that he had got him. The threat to his throne. But his coming forth is from of old, from ancient days, and he cannot be defeated. Why do the peoples rage and plot a vain thing? Our Lord Jesus Christ cannot be defeated. So in that attempt, he was not overcome. And years down the road, when still a rather young man in our reckoning, they did succeed to have him killed as a criminal, crucified. He was not overcome. 
their sin was overcome. The plots of the nations were overcome. The scheming of the devil and the devil himself was overcome. Because when they proceeded to kill him, he was laying down his life. And he had the authority from God the Father to take it back up again. And in his death, all our enemies, death included, die. God has fulfilled his word. And he has given us our hope. And there's something else I want you to see. The last now that's describing that future age has already broken into the present because he has come. And because he accomplished our salvation. And because he ascended back into the heavens to be at the Father's right hand victorious and to pour out the promised Holy Spirit. He is right now, just as this word promises, he is now becoming great to the ends of the earth by the Holy Spirit who has been given, who bears witness to the Son. You see, the tide is already coming in. And very soon, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of His glory, just as the waters cover the seas. Habakkuk chapter 2. I want you to hear the word of the Lord. I want you to take this to heart. I want you to take heart. I want you to take heart when the present evil age looks like it in your life. When there's an unforeseen accident. When something that you are counting on falls through. When there's a sickness in your home. When there are rebels even in your house. I want you to count on the truth. That the future has broken in. I don't want you to give up to despair. I want you to have the right, proper, heavenward hopes. Because our hope is not ultimately in relief now. We pray for daily bread. Yes. We pray that all will be well, physically and with our souls. We pray for that peaceful and quiet life. This is Jesus. Jesus taught us to pray like this. The the apostles modeled this. But ultimately, this is not where our hopes lie for, for temporal relief here and now. Our hope is in the Lord Jesus Christ and His coming. So are you hoping accordingly? Just as this promise spells out how we're to hope. Are you hoping accordingly? And are you praying accordingly? Are you filled with eager longing for Jesus to come? Are you praying on a daily basis, Lord Jesus, come quickly? Is this your great hope, the appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ? Don't despair when the the present evil age's shadows get cast over your life because our destination is not here and it's not yet. There is coming a future called now in Micah in which the weight of glory will make all of the sufferings of this present time seem to be light and momentary. And that age, that now, will never end. The the first four nows of Micah, four and five, come to an end. The last now never will. And 10,000 years in, doesn't matter, 10 billion years in, face to face with our God, under the reign of our shepherd king, his name great to the ends of the earth, 
will have the same time remaining in that age as when we first begun. Isn't that what we sing? Isn't all this our hope? Take heart. God has fulfilled His promise and He is going to do the rest. Are you His? Are you the remnant? Are you in the flock? Are you on His side? Are you under His reign? Let's pray. Father, I pray that every single soul here would be trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, in who He is, God the Eternal Son, become flesh. And what He did in His life and death in our place and resurrection. And I pray that every single one would be hoping in Him alone. Father, if there is one who is not in this remnant, who hear and believe, not in the fold, who know Jesus to be their shepherd, I pray, Father, that by Your Holy Spirit, You would help them, You would make them to see that Jesus alone can save. Jesus alone is worth following. Jesus alone. Jesus alone. It's Christ alone. I pray, Father, that you would awaken within them life and desire for Christ. And may we all, Father, have the strength of the hope that you have given to us to look to Christ alone all the days of our life until this present evil age is finally extinguished for good. And we are in your presence forever. Keep us believing. Keep us hoping in Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.